Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we have a twist for you. We are talking about twists, and this is because we are both enjoying several forms of media that have some some good old good old-fashioned twists in them. Some twists and turns. We're not talking about the M. Night Shyamalan type of twist. We're talking about the kind of twist that actually completely reframes everything about what you're watching or experiencing in a probably in a, in a pretty intelligent and interesting way. And especially we're talking about the good place. So Rob, I know you are you are right at the end of season one. You finished season one. That's is that correct? Yeah, just finished it on Netflix. Uh, haven't been recording season two, which I'm starting to kick myself for because uh, oh. based on the cliffhanger, I'm kind of uh, dying for dying for more. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a show that I thought I had figured out. Uh, oh. you know, what did like you think the, it was about? Let's 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 go into this. What did you think it was about? Oh well, I thought it was like I thought. It was basically what it purported to be, oh. which was a fish out of water story about one of the world's shittiest people who ends up in heaven, <laughs> basically, with uh, lifetime do-gooders. Yes. And the sort of chain of consequence of sort of letting this, uh, the proverbial snake in the garden, I, I guess we'll, we'll call it. Yeah, that's close. Yeah. And then I, I was thinking maybe the show's, like, what it was building towards was some kind of, like, almost a Miltonian, like, ah, but can paradise really be paradise if everyone is this miserable here? Uh, which, you know, wasn't, like, to a degree is, like, related to the game that The Good Place pulls off in the end, <laughs> but not quite, that like, that doesn't quite get you there. Uh, yeah. But... I just think one of the one of the great things about the end of the good place is it has been defined for uh, so many episodes in that first season by some really uh, great characterizations, uh, some great performances, and in its closing minutes, it starts turning over tables uh, yeah. really, really quickly, and builds toward a you know a really shocking like twist ending. Uh, that also features some of the most. Is it fair to call it chilling? I think so. Because, uh, yeah, like without giving too much away, um, you basically see there. There is a reaction shot where you see the weight of everything that's been built and everything that's happened over the course of the season, and everything that gets like sort of blown apart at the end, you see this reaction pass across Ted Danson's face. <laughs> and it's a really subtle thing. Like his, we, we've talked about, I think we've talked about him before on this podcast, in fact, yes. like why we're both having this this Ted Danson renaissance. <laughs> but in a, he has like that caricaturist's dream of a face. And then he's learned to use it like a fine, like a really delicate instrument. And, uh, yeah, he is able to communicate a whole lot with changes in expression that, like, I couldn't exactly define. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. the light changing in a room really subtly. Like, suddenly everything looks, like, weird and sinister and different, but you couldn't actually point to what changed. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant performance. Um, and, oh, God, I, I, I don't want to say anything too much about the second season, but I think the second season blows the first season out of the water by a lot, even including 
that humdinger of a last episode of a conclusion where, oh shit, the thing that you thought was happening is is actually pretty hilariously not what you thought was happening. But the show never... The thing that I dislike about cheap twists, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the old Twilight Zone kind of cheap twist sort of thing, which it wasn't a problem for me as much in, in sort of the old Twilight Zone because, hey, this, this sort of thing was a little bit new. And so it was actually a bit of a shocker in the 50s when, you know... Uh, the eye of the beholder episode or something where, Oh yes, the ugly people were, we're living in a fascist ugly world. That's, that's what's going on. Um, what always annoys me about it is that's always sort of the destination or treated like the destination. Like, yeah. Oh, we were going towards this. We were going along, going along. We just pulled the, the wool out, you know, from, from your eyes. Am I using this expression correctly? Maybe no. it's uh yeah. Okay. Pulled the rug <laughs> out from under you. That's yeah, what it is. There we go. We pulled the rug out from under you. I'm sorry, we're recording this on a Monday. It's, uh, you know. Um, and then that's it. And then that's it. And then, oh my God, you know, there, that's it. Sit there and stew in your awkwardness. No. With The Good Place, it reveals this. And then it goes so hard. And it, it continues to pick up steam and go harder and harder and harder into this sort of beautiful, absurdist comedy about what it means to be a good person and a good human being. And it keeps going and it keeps going. And it just uses that twist as sort of like a, a beautiful gymnast's motion to kind of just go into this other direction and go with the same speed and the same velocity uh, in this other direction. And it's wonderful. I have not seen a, a show sort of stick this kind of twist in, I don't know, maybe ever? I don't know if I've ever had this, this reaction to something feeling like, oh, okay, you really... Yeah, that really was a surprise. And oh my God, you didn't just stop there. You actually built into that. And it's, yeah. oh, it's so good. There are shows that do sort of the twist pilot, right? Like, yeah, yes. Uh, so like Mad Men famously has this uh, sort of cool, sophisticated, sexy, like New York, you know, advertising executive ends the first episode and you realize like, holy shit, he's married with a family, right? And it's actually not that <laughs> shocking because like the care, you know what I mean? Like by the rules of prestige TV, yeah. you know what this do with the game this guy is playing uh, by the end. Or you have like a twist like uh, the pilot episode of The Shield, uh, which is, God, oh, such sure. a great, great show. But the pilot episode of The Shield ends with... Uh, basically a raising of the moral stakes that defines the series uh, from that point forward. Like it distinguishes itself at the end as being like, okay, this isn't just about like a group of good cops, like who are right on the edge. These are actually like evil criminals uh, that this show is about. And we're going to do something here at the end of this episode that makes that irrevocable. Like no matter what happens after this, this is going to loom over the rest of the show. And that's fine, but that's like you can all build that into like that's part of laying the groundwork for the conceit of the show. Yeah. What the good place does with this whole like, yeah, we are going to establish all the rules of our universe and all the plot arcs that matter for these characters. We're going to spend a season doing that. And then at the end, we're basically going to like, like spin all that or like turn all that on its head. And, like, you know, turn it around on you and the characters. Uh, and that's kind of what, like, a, yeah, the Shyamalan-type twist or the, you know, you blew it up, you bastards uh, <laughs> type thing, you know. But with those moments, where do you go from there, 
right? Like, this is always the problem with the twist ending is like, oh, well, after that, the story becomes unsustainable because kind of what you've, like, what you spent the last hours telling is effectively meaningless. And I've been curious whether The Good Place would be able to, like, move on from that, right? Like, it's a great beat, but one of the things I did hear about season two, uh, some people are loving it. I also heard some critiques that it's become addicted to big gestures and, like, big state-changing uh, moves hmm. uh, that kind of detract from what was originally a pretty great, like, uh, ensemble comedy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's several status quo upstarts, certainly. Yes, uh, I won't deny that. I think they work in favor of the show, and I think they work in favor of just how absurd the show sort of has is and always has been. I don't think it's a wild... Let's put it this way, uh, without saying anything too specific, because I really, really do want to sort of hear your thoughts once you start digging into the second season. Um, But the ensemble cast is still there, but it is uh, somewhat more limited because we are focusing in on sort of another central conceit and another sort of plot that is very interesting and very fun to watch. I think it works. I think that those state changes do work because we're we're kind of following up on characters who are trying really, really hard to make something really untenable work out. Uh, and it's and it's fun to watch them sort of twist and turn and make these things work and sort of do the mental gymnastics as well as the sort of giant physical, physically impossible gymnastics that are the sight gags on the show, which get better, I think, as the show goes along as well. And especially now that it's like showing its cards a little bit, it's it's really fun to kind of watch uh, the ways in which reality is fabricated on this show and watch them change a little bit. It's I enjoy it anyway. I think it's a lot of fun. So it's definitely working for me. I, I could see those those criticisms, but I really think it's it's a stronger show in the second season than the first. I think it's it's going all in on the things that it does really well. And I'm very, very pleased thus far. <sighs> What makes a what makes a really great twist? And I think there's different forms they can take, right? Like for all that Shyamalan gets the shit kicked out of him. Although although I need to see the the visit that he did recently, right? The, I actually the one about really the, liked that. I heard that one was good. <laughs> like I, I, I like, really liked it. Yeah. But a lot of like the rap on a lot of his movies is that they they hang on this like critical missing piece of information or a conceit that like once it's revealed kind of makes everything sort of fall apart but uh and and i think a movie that actually definitely suffers from that is the sixth sense which is kind of the movie that made his reputation but like once you know that ending does that movie like have any dramatic tension there's some fine work in it there's some decent acting but like when I've gone back and looked at it, uh, I just find nothing there. Whereas when I like look at Unbreakable, I do think that that is sort of a twist ending that works because it's not about the trick played on the audience, but more the way characters are forced to confront what they already should have known about their world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that actually works better as a mood piece and a tone piece than The Sixth Sense did because it was essentially a mystery. And once you kind of know the answer to a mystery, if there's nothing else working at it, if there's no other layers really, and I, this is this is weird, but 
I haven't seen The Sixth Sense since I saw it in theaters in 1990. Oh, wow. I, I saw it, like, in the theater. I, the same with Unbreakable, but for whatever reason, I, I have, like, read more criticism of Unbreakable sort of after the fact as a fully grown adult, because I think that came out when I was pretty young as well. I don't know, 16 or 17, I'm guessing. Yeah. But yeah. That was in that era, right? Late late 90s, very, very, very early 2000s. I think I was in high school. Um, I just have remembered Unbreakable as being a much more sort of effective tone piece. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and The Sixth Sense being like a really fun ghost story that actually didn't have any other sort of trappings of good ghost stories. <laughs> like the actual, I don't know. I, I, I love myself a good ghost story. I love being in that sort of spooky atmosphere and, and looking at these like very interesting moral, you know, issues about whether a life was done or whether, you know, the life's work was done. That's kind of fun for me, but yeah, I, I, in terms of thinking about a good twist, I I think the number one thing for me is that it, it doesn't just feel like that's the finish line, the finish line. If the finish line is the twist and you don't have anything else worth kind of going back and looking over the race for you kind of fucked up a little bit yeah (laughs) i mean that doesn't mean oh your your piece of media is is like a piece of shit or anything but i prefer a good twist to make me sit there think about it reframe things in my mind and then be absolutely as enjoyable to go back and watch again and not just for signs of the twist or anything like that i i don't want to necessarily just be a little weird you know observant detective when i watch a movie but i do enjoy that reframing process i enjoy for example we were talking about blade runner a few times i enjoyed sort of you know watching various cuts of that movie and then kind of going back and thinking about oh yeah deckard as a replicant versus deckard as a human you know watching the very first cut of it when i was in high school or whatever it is fun for me to kind of go back and enjoy like the reframing process um whether or not that was actually an intentional twist (laughs) we could talk about for a year but yeah (laughs) yeah i think if we're like that doesn't feel like a twist because like woven through that film it's meant to be part of this thing that forces you to keep re-examining these events yeah i I do wonder if you're seeing it for the first time, you've never seen this movie before in your life, and maybe I should ask my girlfriend because she just had this experience, if it feels more like a twist than somebody like us who has watched various cuts of this movie throughout That's the years. That's very true. I, I wonder, I, and I'm not saying, oh, I think this. I, I just sort of wonder if it if it feels that way, the way it's presented at the very end like that. I, I'm not sure, but yeah. Sorry, go on. You're, you're Yeah, no, but like that. that's a case where it's... An important complication to to the picture. It's a piece of information that's sort of not explicitly stated that changes your understanding of events. Um, and, and I think that's kind of where you want to end up. I, I yeah. think you you. I think that the, when it's most successful, you need to you need to either see sort of that uh, moment of revelation reverberate through the story, or you at least need to be able to. It needs to be giving you something to think about and meditate on over how it changes your appreciation of the story and what you expect for the journey these characters have been on. Um, which is why I think a lot of like, you know, gotcha twist endings end up not really working um, because so much of it is about the trick 
right? Like, yeah. uh, I, I like a lot of Nolan films. Um, yeah. But, like, okay, so a quick... Let me give you two two examples. Okay. okay. Uh, from from his work, because he because he loves this you know layered plotting bullshit. Like all his <laughs> movies are sort of constructed around these these tricks. Yeah. Um, Memento versus the Prestige. Oh, good. Okay, so you picked his two best movies. Go on. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Uh, mm, yeah, probably. Well, the Prestige for me is above and beyond everything else. But hundred yes. percent, yeah. right there with you. Memento, and and this is where I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure the Memento. I'm not. I'm not sure Memento really holds up that well okay. once the once you've seen the the hand that it has to play. Uh, now I, I've seen it a couple times. Like it's a very well made movie. Uh, there are some great performances uh, in, in that movie that I think make it very watchable. Yeah. But once now that I know what the what what the what Memento is about, there's like no dramatic tension to that movie for me and so I don't really like find myself moved by it or affected by it. Whereas the Prestige the revelation at the end is more of a portrait of Dorian Gray type yeah. revelation where it's like oh no there is a thing going on here that is about the internal like moral state of the character yeah. that is critical information about what's been going on for the last like 45 minutes of this movie and what this character has chosen to do and knowing that twitch that twist doesn't change how, how i feel about that movie like it actually enriches it but like there is still a dramatic tension in those moments that the movie is sort of building towards but it's not all in the service of that one moment. It's about what we know about these characters. Memento, I feel, is completely about the revelation at the end. The entire movie is constructed around the trick. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, I mean, I could also do a, a full podcast on The Prestige. We could do, like, many, many episodes of it. But I completely agree with you. I think it that really does show that sort of... The, there's like a cinematic pleasure in sort of going back and watching something really masterfully made that tricks or not, you are absolutely, um, you're reframing it in your mind. You're enjoying it from that framing. And I, yeah, I completely agree with that sort of the portrait of Dorian Gray at the end of that. Let me ask you this. When you are watching something and you have this twist is, do you like that? Do you appreciate it? Is there like a, a, a feeling of like great pleasure on your point that's like, yes, I figured it out. Or, oh, I see what they're doing there. Do you have that moment? Or is that something more unofficial like for you? Or is it more eh for you? Um, it really depends how it's carried off. Um, okay. Like... So, okay, uh, an example of, like, where I think this starts to go wrong is um, I find Westworld very well made. Sure. And it's a fun thing to speculate about, like, ah, what is going on? I think I see where it's going. That's all good. Um, at the same time, I think the show is kind of built around that question of, like, what are we going to do next? And <laughs> yeah. what that kind of means is... I'm no longer watching for, you know what I mean? I'm not watching for these characters. Like, I'm not really interested in that. What I'm interested in is, like, knowing what 
the next trick is, knowing what the next move in this in this in this constructed story is going to be. And so, like, I can appreciate the way it sort of got its hooks into me, but at the same time, there's a part of me sitting back and being like, "Yeah, but actually, if you took away all this intrigue and the way it's sort of misleading you about what's going on, would you give a shit about any of this? Would <laughs> would, would you still would you care or like this world or the people or what it's saying about you know the human experience?" In Westworld's case, I suspect the answer is no. Yeah, Westworld is a very tricky one for me, um, especially because, as as with a few shows that I that I watch, um, you know, there are times in life where, where, let's say, you know, my partner watches on without me, and then I sort of catch up, or she'll just sort of give me the like the one on one version so we can watch the next episode together. Westworld is one where I only missed one episode, but it was the episode where that you know the reveal about the the nature of what was going on with the dual timelines was revealed, um, and <laughs> I sort of I kept watching. and was very interested in it, and I had I had also been you know sort of not that I knew what was going on, but she had sort of said, oh you know what these rumors are and blah 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 and that kind of thing. Like I Westworld as spectator sport was fun for me. I guess I'll put it that way. It was fun to watch the show and, and be on social media and kind of be a part of the, the little zeitgeist uh, of the excitement of it, I guess. But I didn't miss that one sort of crucial part of it. And I still enjoyed myself. I still enjoyed this spectator sport. It's also because Westworld is hitting on, uh, it is scratching certain itches that I absolutely have. If you give me a sci-fi story that's about the nature of what, you know, the holodeck would really be like. I'm, I'm down for it. I, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that, whether it's dark, whether it's light, whether it's, you know, whatever it's going to say. Simulation and reality and, and, and sci-fi are, you know, bread and butter for me. Absolutely. Uh, if it had been cyberpunk, yes, I probably would have liked it even more, but that's fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with the Western theme. It's fun. Um, but yeah, I, I do have like a pretty... It's almost embarrassing, but I get I I do have that like initial rush of a reaction to a twist. I get like, yeah, that's what's going on. I I, I kind of like you know sit there and I'm not. I guess I'm really not fun to watch movies with sometimes because I get really into it and I get really into the the whole yeah. You know, if if I'm at home, I don't do this in a movie theater because that would get me thrown out probably. But I enjoy that like aspect of almost like you're talking to the TV or talking to the audience or talking to whoever is there with you and kind of having having fun with that. So I I do get that. And then often the rush will will sort of subside, the little the little rush of of excitement will go away and whether or not something was really well made and really kind of stands up to being a, a full movie with like a full experience behind it as opposed to just a magic trick with a whole bunch of scenes supporting the magic trick is going to depend on how I actually see things or how I actually enjoy things. We were talking about The Visit uh, a couple of minutes ago and that one, I think that's actually one of Shyamalan's best because it it has the sort of twist aspect, but you, you kind of know... I, like if you, if you're kind of paying attention, you kind of know what it's building towards, and it's much more effective as a piece of of a horror movie that is sort of almost not a horror movie in certain ways, or not at least until the end. It's 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 commenting a lot on how just the aging process is a horror movie, <laughs> which I thought was fun. Um, also, it has a lot of weird, quirky things in it that are pretty enjoyable, but. Yeah, that to me feels like it's a complete movie that's actually saying something and trying to say something and has has a complete tone and a complete mood without just being a magic trick 
stacked up on a bunch of, uh, you know, reels of film, basically. <laughs> How do you feel about the Bioshock twist? Oh, man. All right. Well, I loved it at the time. Not going to lie. I thought it was brilliant. That was a brilliant commentary on video games and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, the things that people have been writing think pieces on for literally 10 years at this point. That is all about agency and all about this and all about that. I think it's one of those things where it was a really good magic trick, especially at the time. And you can only do that trick once ever, really. You know, you can never really kind of get away with that again unless you're doing it in a really clever and great way i also really like the first bioshock I, i've since gone back I, I went back a couple of months ago and i played much of it again it's certainly not you know the greatest game ever made or anything like that but it it really is a fun game and it really does have this wonderful just theatrical flair to it every every ounce of that game has this sort of dripping with theatrical flair and and you know it, you can see behind the curtain pretty easily but if you're willing to suspend disbelief it sure is a hell of a ride so yeah those are my thoughts <laughs> i guess on that yeah i think like yeah i still love that game and I, and i think the the twist still works because it's still novel in a game to have that that many moments that sort of quietly should raise some flags, but like don't. Yeah. Um. And 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 since fundamentally game design didn't change very much, you know what I mean? Like game design right. didn't change all that much after that. So we're still used to all those settings where guns are put down without you putting in a command. You know, all the things that right. allow games to continue uh, moving forward and feeling dramatically consistent. But it's still cool to have like. This this game sort of builds toward this moment where you're basically told you've been a puppet the entire time and you're there to fulfill a mission. And then sort of in the same breath, have the target that you've been building toward the entire game, in a way, kind of grant you some form of freedom. Uh, from that, that you know, in 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 you know, at his at his eleventh hour, uh, Ryan sort of walks the walk at last. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and lives yeah. and dies by free will. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think what's made that, what, what has changed that, the context around that moment a little bit for me is that uh, Bioshock Infinite exists, oh, I guess. I, yes, it does. And I think it ended up cheapening the twist a little bit there because it's not doing the same trick at all. Um, but it's still playing with that, like, I guess Bioshock Infinite lets you look at, uh, this, like, using the same toolbox, it carries off the trick less, less effectively, right? It's still doing that winking, like, ah, but it's a video game, and, you know, we sort of can control what the, the rules of this world, and et cetera, et cetera. But whereas in Bioshock 1, it's an earned moment within that story. Yeah. Bioshock Infinite kind of feels like, yo, we, we, <laughs> I, I can design games. It's I have a game engine. I can do this shit now. Look at, look at, this por look at these portals. It's kind of how it feels to me. Yeah. There's also the... Uh... There's also the fact that that game 
in its DLC, which I didn't play and I have refused to play for moral objection <laughs> because it retcons all of Bioshock. <laughs> it yeah. retcons the whole fucking thing. Uh, and, and I'm sorry, but I think the laziest retcon ever is the many worlds theory. It's just, uh, you know, it's an exciting idea, but dramatically, I, what does it have going for it? What's that? Sorry. It's an exciting idea, but dramatically it's poison. It just, it just means nothing means anything. Yeah. And it's like, well, thanks asshole. But <laughs> the entire point of narrative is that there is a point to ordering things in a beginning, middle and end, whether or not you remix that, whether or not you do that creatively, whether or not you, you know, do all, you can do millions and millions of permutations of that. But the entire point to creating a narrative, which is the way our brains understand anything in the universe is to put some kind of order around it, to give it some kind of meaning. Even if it's a very small meaning, even if it's just the barest touch of meaning, Many Worlds just throws all attempts at meaning at the door. Which again, it's it's perfectly fine as a scientific theory and it can be fun to do some some fun things with it, but like, in terms of like hooking your story onto it, oh. Well, yeah, like Bioshock <laughs> Infinite, um, the Elizabeth you spend most of the game with you do not save. It is revealed she's recaptured and basically turned into Darth Vader against her will, yep. which is also kind of hand-waved away. Uh, but nevertheless, it's not a super successful moment because, like, okay, well, the story, like, yes, looked at from the point of view that you are only Booker and you, guess, only care about what Booker goes through, then yes, I suppose it, it leads toward, like, a redemptive ending of sorts and things do work out. But if your goal was, like, well, I care about this Elizabeth, um, and this is a person I've spent hours and hours with, uh, you didn't win, and the rest of her life was a fucking nightmare. Yeah. But don't worry, she's cool with it because it's many worlds. And <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It doesn't... Yeah. It doesn't hang together, and, and you, you can end up sort of, yeah, just <laughs> stuck on that hamster wheel of uh, of tricks. But I guess everything did work out, because then at the end, there's the magic drowning baptism. Yep. It all came full circle, Rob. Can yeah. you believe it? Yeah. It's <laughs> Circle's <laughs> Sorry, unbroken. I can't even be, like... It's... Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there are a lot of... There, there are a lot of things I admire about infinite. Yeah. But it had, it blows so many important moments and opportunities. Like this is without even getting into, uh, the equivalence politics. (laughs) Um, but both sides, Rob. Oh man. Oh man. But both sides. Oh, I'm sorry. I fell asleep again. Are you you there? (laughs) Um, yeah, God, looking at that game in this year feels especially interesting. Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> it's of an era, like, its politics belong to the uh, rally to restore sanity slash fear oh, boy. Uh, politics, oh, boy. right? Of like, oh, yeah. boy, this sure is unpleasant, huh? Wouldn't it be better if nobody had strong feelings? And, <laughs> hmm, uh... Yeah, it's a statement that you could only make if you weren't um, really paying attention to the stakes or or how side what what sides were being animated about. I agree. Let me, let's let me ask you this. Yeah. Can you think of and and I can so I do have an example if you can't think of anything, but I I do want to ask 
now that we're looking at like a complicated, you know, video game magic trick in the first Bioshock and then a, 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 a failure of one in, in Infinite, can you think of a good narrative twist in a game that, that actually really kind of was like, yeah, all right, that's cool. That's interesting. That did something. God, I'm I'm thinking here. Um, I have a couple, so I can do one, and if it if it jogs your memory, maybe. Well, I think you're gonna do the one that I was gonna do, but let's 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 oh, let's you? hear oh, it. No, let's hear do it. Do the one. Do it. Do it. No, it's no. yours. No, it's yours because I have two, so you can have one. Okay, let's talk about prey. Fuck yeah, we can talk about prey. I actually wasn't even on my list. I have two other ones, but we can talk about prey because it's fucking awesome, and we can always talk about prey. Go ahead. All right, so yeah, the uh, so Prey, <laughs> I think, does a really great job of, on the one hand, looked at it from a certain point of view, like, oh man, Prey's so good. Okay. Oh, yes. So, okay. We were just talking about a lot of twists have a way of making it seem like everything you did, everything you've seen, this entire story has been a meaningless trick and none of it matters. And to a degree, that's literally what's happening in Prey. You know, at the end, it's revealed that it's not quite it was all a dream. Uh, okay. But from a certain point of view, none of what you've just seen or done was necessarily real. And yet, what matters is that you went through it. The entire thing is about like, okay, but how did you react to the story? Like, what did you do going through it? What moral culpability uh did you choose to bear for what happened in this world and it doesn't matter at the end the the twist kind of means that none of that was like concrete real world consequences because you still went through it you still carry the weight of it and that's what the story has ultimately been about is can Can someone change who they are? Can they get it right given a second chance to go through an, to go through something, right? Yes. Like, and can there be peace between these two? And can there be some sort of peace or understanding reached between these two very different sort of um, beings, minds uh, that exist in this world? So, yeah, I think that's where it ends up succeeding really, really well. Um, because the twitch is the, the twist is still very clever. Like at the end, it's still really cool when you realize kind of the game that's been played on you uh, f throughout the story. Um, and it's sort of like a twist within a twist because the game's always been playing with these themes of reality and unreality. Um, and yeah, so I think that's that's an example of of how to do it right because whether or not you know, what the overall conceit is doesn't make that story matter any less. It was real to you. Yes. It was, you know, it was real to someone. So yeah, I have of course, similar feelings about prey, but that was very eloquent as always. Um, another game where it's it, because it's you that experienced the story because you're experiencing it, whatever the, the twist may be, uh, is what remains of Edith Finch, which uh, is a game mm. that I, I liked quite a bit this year. And, uh, yeah, I, I, the main premise. Did you play this game at all? Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. I, I, I'll try to be at least a little bit vague, but it's definitely one of those where 
you're not really sure what the frame is necessarily. You're you're going through all these sort of different uh, disparate narrative experiences that different members of this sort of wacky family how they died basically uh and and there's very people of various ages and weird experiences and it's, it's mostly a first person game but there are sections where you're doing other things basically there's they're almost mini game like and some are sort of more affecting than others but it it's essentially a collection of short stories that are all sort of tied around a particular frame and there's a little bit of a twist at the end uh, in terms of whose identity is who and, and that sort of thing that's kind of just meant to be a poignant retelling or, you know, a poignant, oh, it meant more because of who experienced this. But again, the weight of that game is all in sort of experiencing these short stories and experiencing what somebody went through and experiencing something for yourself and sort of enjoying it or, or taking what you will of it, even though it's it's kind of in a lot of ways, a really sad game because there's a lot of dead children in this game. Like a right. lot of kids die in horrible macabre ways in this game, but it's it's wistful and interesting and I think a really worthwhile experience uh, that has like, it, let's call it like a light twist. It's not like a big, oh my God, giant revelation. There's like a light twist that kind of ties it up, but I think it works uh, for this genre and also for, you know, again, like similar to Prey, it, it matters because you went through it. It matters because this is the version of the story that you sort of experience and that's why it matters. And sort of somewhat on that note, but more the twist yeah. or, or whatever really, really means something because it's actually really part of the fiction uh, would be Soma, the game that I think is Oh, yeah, good Paul, good Paul. <laughs> yeah. That's that's one where there is a twist sort of halfway through, twist, whatever. You know, I guess we're using this a little bit loosely, but it is sort of a twist in the way that your character experiences it. It's certainly a twist, a very existential and dreadful and horrible thing uh, about the nature of consciousness. And essentially his consciousness has been copied from one body to another, but it doesn't, you know, immediately die in, in one body. It doesn't just sort of, oh, okay, you just went from here to there and that, and you are who you are. No, he, he sort of finds out in this really dramatic and really just, oh my God, kind of way that like, oh no, that copy of you is still very much you, at least at the moment where the separation came. But it's going to just live in a in a dead body until, you know, the power goes out, basically. It's just like really horrifying, Jeez. like holy shit kind of moment. And it really works because that's exactly what that game is doing. That game is making really uncomfortable statements about what the nature of consciousness is, especially once you once it's sort of untied from the biological confines of the human body, right? And it's not in a sort of evil lab setting. It's not in a sort of malicious setting where somebody did this to someone. This is it's also in the context of um not to go too deep into it, but basically Everything that has happened in this world is a plea for survival. It, it is something human and maybe something not entirely human that is just trying to survive and do its best to survive. There's no malicious intent on any level of this game, which is part of what makes it so brilliant and part of what makes it work so well. It's the sort of horrifying things that can come from good intentions, the sort of horrifying things that can come from just the absolute will to survive and need to survive. And that that is part of what makes that twist work because it's like, yeah, you should be shocked. This is fucked up. <laughs> and then you have to keep playing the game with that knowledge and keep playing the game and keep going through this sort of horrifying set of circumstances with that knowledge. 
Uh, so I think that's really effective uh, where it was done there. So uh, get your good sci-fi and games, kids. That's uh, <laughs> and and I guess uh, with Edith Finch, it's a little bit more, you know, just sort of kooky, weird, quirky, wistful storytelling. A little bit ghost story stuff, but not not yeah. all the way into ghost story territory. But of that of that uh, tradition in some ways. But yeah, those are mine. Do you have Do you have any other ones? Or are we? We're happy I mean, I'm them. I'm thinking. <laughs> I think you sort of hit the highlights in this conversation. <laughs> sure. I'm I'm thinking like this is this is something I'm always like up for discussing more, right? Like because yeah. you know I was thinking like oh I'd love to talk about Vertigo at some point in this conversation, yes. but like that's an entire other like it's about you know obsession, uh, you know masculinity. Yes. Uh, it's yeah, there's there's a lot of great things there, but like the twi- like it's such a can of worms uh, that. Yeah, might, might as well just let it sit. Um, I'm trying to think if there are many games that just have like, because Soma is sort of like Blade Runner, like you said. It's it's asking these big important questions and like asking you to reflect on them. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about with when I finally do play uh, Near Automata. Yeah. Um, you know, remember I was the one who took the bullet and actually edited Patrick's thing on it for Waypoint because uh, right. I didn't mind getting spoiled. <laughs> um, but I was struck by what I really enjoyed was you're meant to be spoiled pretty early in your relationship with Nier. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's a game that, yes, initially depends on playing what sounds like a pretty obvious trick on you. Yeah. Um, and then working through the implications of that trick. Um, I think that's an important, that's an important step. Uh, that's an important thing that has, that, that not necessarily should, but I, I think, I think a surprise ending or, or last minute or, or, or a reveal yeah. works a lot better when it has room to breathe like that. Yeah, I agree. I, I just like it. If there's something else there and uh, yeah, I totally agree. So we well, we can talk about twists again. We can uh, in a, in a shocking twist, we can revisit this in a uh, in a future Idol weekend. But I think right now it's probably time for us to move on and uh, go to our weekend correspondence. We have a hell of a letter right here, and it's actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. So uh, it's from our, our our friend of the show, I think, or friend of the mailbag at the very least, friend of the mailbag, John Rennish, uh, who writes, "Good day, weekenders." Proper pacing impacts everything from horror, comedy, sports, meals, and especially games. Do either of you have a particular preferred pace of play? Or as an example, uh, when a chance of, uh, excuse me, a change of pace pivoted your perception of a particular piece. Does purchasable progression, loot boxes et al, uh, push that precious balance over the precipice? I've personally purchased priority passes at theme parks, paying a pretty penny to pass other patrons, reviving a better experience as a quid pro quo. Cheers, John Rennish. And I appreciate the plosive peas that I just did to my uh, pop screen right there. That was, that was very, very good. I've actually been thinking about this a lot uh, because I just finished uh, my first Dishonored. Uh, this yeah. this could have been a topic for for another day, but I think it's actually really relevant here. So I'll, I'll bring it up. Uh, I just finished Dishonored: Death of the Outsider, which I think is an incredibly strong game. I think it holds together beautifully. It might be 
my favorite Dishonored experience, but it might not be because I haven't finished two yet. That's the big goddamn Did you finish issue. one? No, I never finished one. I'm awful. This is my first finished Dishonored, is the, okay. the shortest of Dishonored. Mm. And I took my sweet time with it. I did 30 mm. plus hours in a five mission game that is like, yes, <laughs> probably like a 10 to 12 hour game for a normal human being. But uh, You gotta me. be like Arcane's Gamer of the Year. Oh God, I'm sure they, yeah. I fucking love them. I'm sorry. They just they just know how to make a really, really good immersive sim. Let's just put it out there. They make a good goddamn immersive sim. Anyway, um, but it's relevant to this question because the last mission actually introduces a tremendous change of pace and a change of paradigm in the game itself. So it's not really a twist per se, but it, it's something of a twist. I play these games slowly, methodically, and then all of a sudden I'm like, what the fuck, whatever. I'm just going to try some bullshit. Like I, I both play them slowly and methodically and also play them with an eye for absolute chaos. Although not killing people. I try not to kill people. I had two missions out of five that were fully merciful, no kills. And then there was like one where like two people, you know, fell in a fucking river after I knocked them out or some stupid thing, which is, ugh. anyway, we'll talk about that some other day. But I really, really, really love that these games, uh, that Arcane's, you know, Immersive Sims and Dishonored, especially actually in this in this case, really allow you to just go hog wild with experimenting with all these weird systems and with like, you know, guards. The guards are really stupid, but they're yeah. but they're also very observant. So they're stupid as hell and also observant, which is a lot of fun to kind of play with. So it doesn't really let you get away with being seen very often, but it does let you get away with a lot of bullshit in terms of like, you know, being in combat and sort of knocking people out while you're still in combat, which is what I do all the time. It's really fun. I go like full assault, full merciful. It's extremely fun. I'm like, I'm going to get in a fight with all of these people and not kill them because <laughs> that's the Danielle way. You know, me and Batman, we're best buddies. Uh, but yeah, it's really, really fun. And I went through the whole game doing this. And then in the very final level, I won't like go too far into it because it's not important for the means of this discussion, but it, introduces a brand new type of enemy and thus completely changed the way I played the game. It completely changed the pace of the game for me. So I go through methodically, I go through methodically, I do some bullshit, then I go through methodically, I go through methodically, I do some bullshit. With this enemy, it can pretty much one hit kill you. And so the first few times I encountered it, I, I tried a bunch of bullshit. I tried all kinds of things. I tried you know, experimenting with all my various weapons and, and accoutrements and nothing really worked all that well. So instead of playing it like I played Dishonored, I played it like I played, like, I don't know, like Wolfenstein in some ways. Like I sped through everything. I just dashed through. I ran through. I blinked through whatever the term is all over this level uh, just to avoid these enemies that would just crush me in one in one hit. And I basically just ended the game. That's the last level of the game. I didn't know it at the time because I was like, oh, I'm sure there's other stuff after this. Whatever. I've gotten most of the bone charms. I've gotten most of the stuff because I went through the level before it sort of changed irrevo irrevocably. And then slammed through the rest of this level. And it really changed the pace. And I and I didn't love it, to be honest. I, I think narratively what's going on at the very end of that game is really cool and really interesting. And the very, very end, the very last decision is one of the coolest things in any Dishonored game. Uh, and I, I encourage people to play it and, and finish the game and actually get to that decision because it has a really interesting meditation on forgiveness and what it is to forgive, especially in this incredibly weird world where a lot of things are warped. Um, hmm. But that last part of the last level 
I did not love it. I did not love the change of pace there. And it made me really realize what is fun for me about these games is how much I get to dictate the pace. I get to decide yeah. to be completely meticulous, to look at literally every art asset in, in every level, pick up everything, to play with everything, to kind of figure out my, my favorite way through a level, save scumming my whole goddamn way through, of course. And then also, when I feel like it, to just get into some bullshit, to just fight some dudes and just stack them up and put them into beautiful arrangements. I, I do all kinds of things with the, you know, I stack the guards' bodies in weird places and I'm just like, oh, they're all snoring. It's very nice. Uh, I just love that kind of freedom. And the fact that I couldn't have that kind of freedom, that I couldn't really go about it my way, made me a little, eh, that was actually a little, mm. So this type of game, I just like that freedom. So... I think um, I tend to be I tend to be a little more deliberate in terms of pace of play. Uh, like I like being in control of the pace or having time to think and plan and and take things in. I think this is why like a game like Designer works for me because it's all about like hey you want room to take things in and sort of savor this environment go right ahead. Uh, versus like Alien Isolation, <laughs> which is very much about like making that environment hostile. Uh, and so there's a lot of moments where I'm like, ooh, I wonder what's around here. And then it's like, uh-oh, the air shafts are banging again. Uh, better just run like hell, um, which is kind of frustrating. As far as the other part of this with loot boxes and uh, yes, the various sort of accelerations that they offer uh, to uh, to games... I think it does affect the balance of pace of play because I think there are too many games that are starting from a position of we're going to draw this way the fuck out. Yeah. And hopefully you're going to get so impatient <laughs> that you're going to want to start like springing for ways to advance the pace of progression. And I guess I'm more forgiving of that in like a free to play game uh, because that's like you know, obviously at some point you need to convert people into paying customers. Uh, otherwise it doesn't work. So I've always sort of understood like if there's a lot of grind associated with it, um, you know, that's very much kind of what the entire business model depends on. And at a certain point, if I don't like it, but I do like the game, then it's up to me to, you know, sort of put my, put my money where my enjoyment is. Yeah. But I also kind of do get the feeling like, you know, with Forza 7, for instance, there's a perfectly fine racing game there out of the box. But like if you want to have a bunch of stuff to do in that game and a bunch of different cars to drive, and a bunch of different experiences to have, um, it does involve a lot of grinding. And that's not necessarily such a problem, except there's also some significant loading times uh, associated with like getting into any given race. Mm. And so it's not like Forza 7 is a great racing game. Like Once you're on the track, I'm happy as a clam. But there are all these things that are like, we're going to make you just run a lot of iterations of these races in order to get more stuff. Um, and collecting cars has like no, it, do, it doesn't feel special really. It just, it, it does just feel like a time sink. Um, and then the game is sort of structured around, well, here are these ways you can, you know, pick up the pace of getting credits 
And more importantly, here, ways you can pick up the pace of getting rare cars and better cars. Um, that seems a little bit compromising. Yeah. Um, ditto a lot of your MMO adjacent games, right? Like, you know, the division is just mind numbingly paced. Um, and I don't know, like, and honestly, that might just be badly paced, right? Like, I'm not yeah. necessarily sure it's trying to make a big killing on you uh, as, as a customer, but. Uh, yeah, I, I just feel like there are so many games, Battlefield games takes an, forever in a day to unlock meaningfully diverse weapon kits, uh, things like that. And I think what it adds up to is it doesn't necessarily kill your enjoyment of like playing the game, but it kills your ability to access the variety that's in an experience. Yeah. And I just don't, Chances are I don't like your game enough to spend more money just to get like shit like, you know, special weapons and cars. Um, and also, I'm probably less likely to enjoy it that much if I'm sort of being forced to run the same pieces of content again and again and again before I get to the quote unquote good stuff. Yeah. I like it might sound really contradictory as somebody who put, you know, 80 plus hours into Prey and 200 hours into Breath of the Wild and, you know, 30 plus hours into a, a the shortest Dishonored game. Uh, but I don't have fucking time for this shit. Like, <laughs> that's my, my attitude towards a lot of that. I, at this point in life, really, really hate grinding on like a moral level <laughs> like a, like it's offensive to me on some level and i and i understand that a lot of people get a lot of enjoyment out of destiny and out of out of games that have loot boxes and and even something like overwatch where the loot boxes haven't been at least i haven't heard of them being as much of a problem as they have been in other games right like it seems like people really like those extras they really enjoy that kind of stuff and that's totally fine i just it just makes me weirdly irrationally angry on some level. And I'm not sure why I just, um, it's, it's fine. It's fine that those games aren't for me, I suppose. Um, but I, I hate the idea of, Oh, you have to spend a lot of extra time on a game or a lot of extra money. Um, it just, it just bothers me. <laughs> well, I think for me, it's like, also, like, it, the full price of admission should not be my ticket in to find out whether I really like this game and want to, quote-unquote, invest in it. Yeah. Like, uh, if, you know, if, if you get in the door and then you're then it's like, ah, congratulations. Now here, here have, a fun, have a fun time. You, you, you've now gone through the big line, and now you have tons of little lines yeah. uh, to, to try to get through. Like... But maybe if you pay us double the value of the game, uh, then you can have all this. And I'm like, well, yeah, but actually, like, you've kind of made me skeptical about the value proposition you're offering. So I'm not sure I actually want to invest in getting deeper into this. Like, I went through this with, um, oh, boy, Payday, the heist. Oh, yes, uh, yes. Sorry, Payday 2. Payday 2, yeah. So... Payday, uh, Payday 2 was sort of billed as having a lot of these really cool end game options, right? Where you could like do really advanced heists. Maybe you'd never even sound an alarm. All this sort of cool stuff to make it more of a 
more of a game that feels like heat, right? Yeah. Um, you'd have your elite gr- your elite crew, and you're doing just cool heists, and yeah, sometimes things would go wrong, and you'd be in like a blazing gun battle because that's kind of the point of you know a heat like game. But at the same time, you'd also have that tension of, but maybe we can stick every landing and do these missions in a really like cool, sophisticated, exciting way. But before you could get to that game, you had to just do height. Like you had to do like the four starting heists, mm. which weren't very long uh, and weren't very interesting. And you had to just do them again and again and again and again with like your starting loadout of like pistols and submachine guns and no utility kit whatsoever. So like, oh, that that building has security cameras. Well, you can um, short out security cameras uh, later in the game. After you've, you know, put in, after you've grinded your way through, like, you know, running this heist 20 or 30 times. Uh, but for now, that is, that security camera is going to catch you every time. Oh. Have fun. Oh. And a lot of people did. A lot of people loved that game. It made them boatloads of money. Huge success. <laughs> Great. I loved Payday the Heist. When Payday 2 came around, I was like first in the door and I was first right back out. I was like, to hell with this. Like, I could see the skill development trees and I was like, this seems like eventually it will turn into a cool game. I no longer have faith that it will deliver on being that cool game because what, how is it, how it has introduced itself is fucking miserable. Yeah. I just, I just can't with a lot of that stuff. I just can't. I, oh, man, I think the only time I ever, I ever even got a little bit into that kind of stuff was with Mass Effect 3's multiplayer. Uh, and I also was playing that because it also made you feel guilty if you weren't because your galactic readiness would go down. Remember that? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I never, I don't think I've ever actually paid money for loot boxes before um, or anything of that nature for, you know, extras. Um, extra items uh, other than like DLC, like a story mission or, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think I've ever actually paid money for that sort of thing because I just, mm, but I did, I was playing a lot of Mass Effect 3 multiplayer. So I did actually, you know, the, the things you would get sort of naturally through playing the game, not, not paying, but sort of through playing, I, I got somewhat excited about them, but I can't think of anything else, uh, that ever kind of got through my, my just general hesitation with, with, with kind of grindy mechanics in that way. So, I, I don't know, man. I just, it's not my thing. And also, there, there is that sort of murky morality to it that, that I don't know. We've talked about that, obviously, uh, on this podcast and others. But ugh. I, just, I just think of a game that's a treadmill of a game, and I, I can't deal with it. <laughs> uh, but yet, yeah, put me in a space station called, uh, you know, Talos four and, and yeah I'll, uh, I'll i'll be there for 90 hours having a fucking blast so <laughs> you tell me what's <laughs> whatever's up with that um i think on that note it's probably time for us to talk about things that we've been really enjoying so rob what's what's your weekend project what's something that you've been loving lately and you or or, no. or not loving i mean just something you want to talk about yeah let's yeah. uh so as you know danielle yeah I'm a connoisseur, a a veritable entertainment sommelier (laughs) of CW content. Fucking right, (laughs) yes you are. I'm done. Uh, Sorry, I can't. I can't continue. (laughs) I have to punch out. Okay. Uh, So 
I started watching out of just curiosity. The CW has a show about the military. Okay. Which is kind of different for the CW because, like, they're the land of, like, pure teen drama or, like, teen-adjacent drama or superheroes. Like, it's all, like, teen, adolescent, young adult-related genre fiction work. Just teen things. Yeah. Yeah. That has a huge following with adults because genre fiction and young adult fiction is popular with tons of people yes. and uh, no, no need for judgment around Absolutely. that. However, I started watching the show called Valor and uh, I don't know if it's going to be good yet, Okay, which is not great because I'm like five episodes in. So I feel <laughs> like it's kind of a slow burn. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping it's a slow burn and not like that it's like building towards something. Uh, so the way it's positioned initially, and I'm actually kind of glad this isn't what the show is about. Ultimately, the way it was sort of pitched is it's about like the first female pilot in this elite, like black operations, helicopter squadron, uh, in the army. And I was sort of thinking, like, okay, it's, like, pitch, but with rotary wing aircraft. <laughs> Perfect. Um, it's not. They actually kind of brush past that stuff pretty quickly, and it becomes more of a uh, almost, like, military spy thriller. But, like, hanging over all of it is everything is dealing with the fallout of this first mission that goes really, really wrong. And there is just a little bit of, like... Um, so her name is uh, Madani. Okay. Uh, Flight officer or Lieutenant Madani. Uh, definitely does feel the scrutiny because, like, obviously she is, you know, one of a handful of women in this in this outfit. And a mission she was on went wrong. Mm. And there's a lot of scrutiny uh, attached to that. But then also it's revealed that a lot more went on in that mission than was initially let on. Oh, I bet and it did. There's, there's spy drama. Oh. Uh, but then there's also her sexy co-pilot, boy, like, uh, not boyfriend, but superior officer. Mm. And then there is her other boy. Then there's her boyfriend who is um, an intelligence officer with the unit. Um, and so there's also a little bit of a love triangle thing between, it's a CW show, a group of extremely good looking people. Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> and in some ways, like... There are things it does well, like uh, an affecting plotline through this season has been like one of the soldiers has been kidnapped and the show spends a lot of time with his wife back on base who isn't in the military um, and is just dealing with the fallout of, or at least more the profound strangeness of these odd little communities uh, that build up around army bases. And the weird like there's still rank and structure even for people not immediately part of the the chain of command and it still matters like the colonel's wife kind of outranks a sergeant's wife mm. but at the same time they both sort of pretend that they're just you know ordinary women who don't have yeah. yeah just people and it touches on some things really really well and then there's also times where it's got kind of a really fascist bent and I don't know if it's knowingly playing with that or if it is 
so in love with the troops that it doesn't see how bad some of these elements are. Like, there's a point where they have to get approval from Congress, and the colonel makes a point of saying, yeah, now we have to ask our, our uh, the intelligence committee, none of whom have served, uh, for permission to, yeah, there's, there's some shit like that. Um, so there are these elements of... Yeah, kind of like fascist, the military is good. Like, literally in an episode I just watched, the colonel's wife tells uh, the wife of the soldier who's been uh, abducted. Uh, she was like, you know, in a country as divided as ours, the army's one of the only things we can believe in. <laughs> okay. And I was like, but at the same time, remember, the text of the show is... There's a massive fucking cover-up right. uh, involving black operations around the world. And, like, the army's kind of ended up to their necks. The CIA is definitely ended up to their necks. Um, and so I don't know where this is going. I don't know what it is adding up to. But it's kind of... It's still really engaging. And it's following a trend I'm really enjoying on CW shows, which is characters call each other on their shit, generally. Like, the CW as a network does not milk drama from people just letting situations fester for ages that should be, like, resolved with the conversation. On pretty much all their shows, people have that conversation, like, immediately. And then it's about how you deal with the fallout of that and, and how you carry that forward. Uh, and Valor kind of fits in that in that mold as well. Um, people are sort of frank and honest and take ownership of, of their feelings, uh, which which I really like. But I don't know where this journey's going. I just kind of am enjoying the ride. Yeah, that, that sounds fair. And also, the the fact of the matter is, I uh, I also love that. I love shows where people actually communicate, call each other on their shit, and strive to get better really like that as as a behavior and i like to see it modeled in tv shows too so so what i want to talk about uh is something called hidden agenda it is a movie and a game basically it's sort of an interactive story very much in the vein of of sort of this was a thing in the early 90s not fmv games but they're actually like movie theaters you made like multiple choice and a different scene would play right it's a little bit like that and it's from Supermassive, who made Until Dawn, the amazing teen teens get killed in the woods, uh, in the snow <laughs> game, Until Dawn. Uh, God, I don't know, two years ago, maybe? Something around that? Uh, so, yeah, same developers. So it has really nice, like, facial scanning technology for the, the character models and things like that. And it is the most, uh, you've seen every beat of this, of this show before. It is like a cop serial killer drama. Uh, you play Becky Marnie, a, a great detective. She's she's like a badass young cop who has just been promoted to detective. And she's, you know, awesome and all these things. Uh, and there's a serial killer who is about to be executed. And oh my God, on the day before his execution, he has some new details about what happened. Uh, so that's sort of the premise. You make decisions on your phone. You and your friends, I played with, uh, uh, it was four people total, and everybody there had actually some, like, video game experience, which is interesting, uh, because these games are part of this, you know, PlayStation's new PlayLink thing, where they're basically party games that are made for people 
they're expressly made basically for people who don't give a shit about video games or play video games, but you can play them with your friends and they're games that you can play. Uh, it does actually help to have some familiarity with video games, it seems, to play this one. Uh, because uh, in addition to sort of making decisions and voting and things like that, you're also searching for clues in uh, various times in, in, in the spaces. You'll be on a crime scene and you kind of swipe around your phone, which uh, sort of causes a flashlight to, to beam across the screen, you know, the big screen on your TV. Yeah. And that's one game mechanic. And there are also QTEs, uh, which, you know, uh. are exactly like QTEs. So I loved this experience. I actually had a great time. And I was playing with other people who love this kind of cheesy as hell, you know, cops and serial killers and murderers kind of story. Um, but I think the fact that we're all really familiar with game mechanics helped a whole lot because I heard Patrick had an experience that was not as great with this game, playing with people who really don't play games. And they were just sort of like, QTE, what the, what? You know, <laughs> which yeah. I, which is fair. It's a weird thing that doesn't make that much sense in the world, right? Oh, this thing is happening, so quickly press a button. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not the way the world works, right? So it's a little bit of a weird construct. I will say... I had a great time with it, though. I had a lot of fun. The story is predictable as hell, uh, is wonderful. It's it's just the right level of cheesy as hell that it's it's very, very enjoyable. Like, oh, there's the young hotshot DA who, for some reason, is actually going to, you know, the prisoner's one-on-one -on -one interview and interviewing him and all this other kind of stuff. And, oh, there's the cop who's a jerk, but, oh, my God, what's going to happen to him? And then there's the cop who's your cool partner, and how loyal are you? And one of the this most... Someone's like Boomtown the game. Oh, yeah? Boomtown? I've never played this Boomtown the game. Oh, no, no, oh. no, 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 no. Uh, Boomtown was uh, Graham Yost's show that he made for nbc after oh. band of brothers on hbo oh boy uh and it's super good because it's like a police procedural case of the week thing oh, but yeah. its whole gimmick was it's told from multiple perspectives okay uh so you know the, initially it's like oh it's almost like rashomon right where you'll yeah. see the same events from every single perspective uh later it starts playing with that format a little bit more but the main thing is it's like Everyone involved in the criminal justice system and around it is sort of represented in each episode. Oh, that's cool. Um, that's kind of nifty. That is cool. All right, Boomtown. Also, let's just add that to my 17 novel long list of things I need to uh, experience. But yeah, it it's very much uh, sort of in that vein. One of the coolest things about the game that I thought was really fun. So we played in the co-op mode. There is apparently a competitive mode. I have not played that yet where you... Where everybody has a hidden agenda, where everybody has, oh, you're supposed to try to influence people's decisions and things like that. In the co-op mode, instead you're voting for things like, which of your friends is the most loyal? Which of your friends is the bravest? You know, things like that. And whoever gets the most votes for those various things will be the one to make a particular decision. Whereas most of the decisions are things you kind of vote on as a group. Uh, which was really fun, and apparently my friends think I am really loyal, really brave, uh, and really gullible. So well, now, now I see. Well, okay, hold on. Yeah. I was like, now I get why you love this game. And no, also then a gullible idiot. You got dragged a little bit. <laughs> that too. So yeah, that was that was pretty good. I had a great time with it. Uh, I do think your mileage will vary <laughs> based on several things, but. It's kind of a cool idea that I would love to see them expand upon and maybe actually make a little more accessible. 
in terms of like just just kill the QTEs. They're not they're not really adding drama at this point in life. And uh, if they're just keeping other people from enjoying this really goofy thing, eh, maybe maybe you didn't need those. I don't know. I'm sure that was a, a back and forth that the design team had for ten weeks, and uh, and hearing me even bring it up probably makes them very upset. But yeah, I, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> All right, well, cool. That was Hidden Agenda, and that was also Valor, and both of those things seem like, hey, they're interesting. Um, <laughs> I, need, worth, I still Worth need, considering, maybe. Yeah, worth, worth looking at. Now, speaking of worth looking at, Rob, I need to see Thor Ragnarok, but I know I'm going to yeah, have same. thoughts. I know I'm going to have thoughts, and I feel like we should have an episode on Thor we're, Ragnarok. We're on the same page that Thor is the best Marvel series, oh, right? Oh, by a country mile. Like, yeah, oh. okay. Oh, that first one was hysterical. Oh. Yeah, the second one has some significant issues. Yeah, but, true. Um, you know, I'll tell you, like, I made the mistake of reading this article on Vox the other day that was, like, the Marvel movies ranked. Oh, boy. And, like, oh. they put, like, Thor at the bottom. No! And then, like, the two Guardians of the Galaxy movie at the, movies at the no. top. No, oh, my God. And I'm like, what? You, like, you fucking, like, trash bags. <laughs> like, good God. <laughs> Yeah, please put the completely batshit romantic comedy on top, starring a man in his wig and his hammer. Like, come on, that's so much better. It's yeah. so much better than the talking yeah. raccoon, and whatever. It's, and it's sincere and it earns its laughs yeah. rather than uh, anyway. Yes, look, I like Guardians one. Uh, the more distance I have from, I, I'm okay with Guardians one. The more distance I have from Guardians two. Uh, the more I just want that entire movie to be shot into the sun. Yeah, that's fair. I never even saw it because I wasn't that impressed with the first one. And I still carry this chip on my shoulder that Jupiter Ascending is way more entertaining. So. But everyone just needs to get out of Thor's way. I best, agree. One of the best Marvel movies. Though I just saw Spot. Anyway, you know what? We're going to do our... We'll talk Marvel yeah. after we've seen Thor. We should have a Marvel. Ragnarok. I think that's... We, we need to go through this. We need to get right with Marvel. Yeah, we do, which I have a lot. I have a lot, and we're going to do it on another episode. Because with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. <laughs> Peace. No. Uh, <laughs> you can learn more about Idle Weekend at IdleWeekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at IdleWeekend.net. Keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate you hanging out with us for this this moment in time. Uh, talking about twists, talking about movies, talking about all kinds of things that we like and enjoy. And also are just generally interested in. If you would tell your friends, if you would tell your enemies, if you would tell your space raccoons that talk. Whoever it is in your life that you think might enjoy Idle Weekend. If you would tell us, uh, excuse me, tell them about us. That means the world to us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you again. And for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekend.